This is the 966 episode 36. Richard, my man, assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam. 36. We're, we're a third of our way to 100. That's, 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 uh, let's, uh, I'm looking forward. I hope we get there. I think we will. We are crushing it on today's episode. <laughs> yes, let us, let us pat ourselves on the back. We are crushing it. <laughs> on today's episode, we're going to be scratching the surface on some issues affecting U.S.-Saudi relations, both now and in the past, including the discussion of a poignant piece by Saudi Arabia's Prince Turkey Al-Faisal that appeared in the Saudi media this week. We'll also talk a little bit about some interesting data on the film industry in Saudi Arabia, another first ever art biennale in the kingdom, and of course, beach soccer training. One of those things is not like the others. Um, before we lift off here, Richard, thanks to everyone for all their positive feedback, emails, shout outs. Just so great to see and hear. Holler at us at the 966 podcast at gmail.com. And of course, follow us or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Richard, we're getting, let's get going. We what's, will, your, we're, what's your one big thing? But before we do that, we're getting out there. We're, we're, we're turning up. The 966 is turning up in all sorts of, of um, sites and, and threads and that sort of thing. So we're getting out there. It is really uh, cool. Uh, and just before I go, I just wanted everyone to know that Lucian says I sound good today. You sound great. And I think that's because I have a two shoebox lift on the microphone. Oh, nice. Okay, good. Yeah, I've been going with one, but today's a two shoebox lift. So, so let's see. Let's see if that's a big difference. It sounds like a two shoebox lift on the mic day. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my one big thing, His Royal Highness, uh, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal, former chief of Saudi Arabia's General Intelligence Director, Directorate, ambassador to the UK as well as the United States, founder and trustee of the King Faisal Foundation, and chairman of the King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies. Both of these, which are, are really highly regarded research and grand institutions. And Dr. Mark Thompson, who we've had and has spoken a lot, has done tremendous research on socioeconomics of, of Saudi Arabia, is with the King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies. Um, uh, but uh, Prince Turkey wrote an article last week for the Arab News entitled, America Should Laugh with the Kingdom, Not Scow. Uh, Prince Turkey, for those of our listeners, listeners who may not know it, holds a particularly elevated position in Saudi Arabia. His father, uh, King Faisal, uh, peace be upon him, is a revered figure for his, for his leadership as well as his piety and integrity. King Faisal, if there were a Saudi Mount Rushmore, would certainly be on it. And the Al Faisal branch of the family in general is replete with accomplished, well-educated, and public-minded members. Uh, Prince Turkey, in his own right, was an essential partner to the United States intelligence and security community while a member of the Saudi government and an effective and active diplomat representing Saudi Arabia uh, with two of its most critical allies, the UK and US. Uh, as a private citizen, Prince Turkey really occupies his own stratosphere in terms of speaking plainly while also being seen as plugged into prevailing Saudi government attitudes. Now, he will always say, I'm not a representative of the government. But uh, his views and perspectives um, really capture uh, a lot of the zeitgeist, I think, in terms of not only the government, but the Saudi populace. Uh, and in fact, few, if any, Saudis have the reach and persuasive abilities of Prince Turkey, which is why this article written for the Arab News is so interesting. And, and, and we, we recommend it to you highly. The context of the article is this. A Saudi TV comedy show recently did a satirical sketch portraying a President Biden character as alternately confused and sleepy during a speech while a hapless Kamala Harris character tried to literally and figuratively prop him up. 
it's the sort of thing we see pretty much every weekend on SNL and any number of comedy programs in the U.S. The sketch, however, seemed to hit a nerve with U.S. media outlets, and much ado was made about how Saudi Arabia was not a friend of the U.S., or Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had cleared the sketch to get back at President Biden for not meeting with him or a slew of other perceived slights. Uh, Prince Turkey aptly points out how hypocritical this response is, given the historical portrayal, portrayal of Saudis and Arabs in American media. He writes, quote, the portrayal of Arabs and Muslims in comedy, drama, adventure, and fantasy fictions goes beyond insults and denigration. The caricatures are reminiscent of how Jews are shown in anti-Semitic material. An Arab-Muslim character usually elicits derision and disgust. With an evil sneer on his face, a dagger around his waist, an unkempt white robe, a straggly beard, and a piercing and piercing eyes with dark with a dark shadow around them. He adds, quote, American politicians of all persuasions shoot arrows at the kingdom to criticize and demean. Um, I, I should, I'd like to add here that in terms of media coverage, Prince Turkey noted uh, how a recent Atlantic uh, interview with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman misrepresented what he said on a number of points. And I just, I just want to add here, I hardly agree with this. And for those of you viewing this on YouTube, uh, Lucia, I'd like to include a, a link to the full transcript of the interview, which was available. I'll send you the link. It was in Saudi Gazette. You got it. Uh, please read it and form your own judgments. Uh, you'll find uh, I was having a discussion with my, my two of my brother-in-laws this, this weekend, Easter weekend, about this very thing, because they asked me about the Atlantic article. And said, let me send you the transcript, and I think you'll come away with a different opinion. Um, for good measure, Prince Turkey points out that U.S. oil policy pressuring Saudi Arabia to produce more, quote, omits to mention that it is the war in Ukraine, Western sanctions on Russia, and Biden's own energy policy that have contributed to the rise in oil prices, unquote. So that's the context of the article. Essentially, American overreaction to a Saudi comedy sketch. Like I said, it's an interesting read. In the larger picture, I think actually Prince Turkey was very gentle in how he, he handled this. Um, but uh, here he is, an experienced diplomat with a distinguished track record of building ties with the U.S. is simply asking that America needs to be significantly more self-aware and work harder to be a better version of itself. This is not just a really great piece. That was a very excellent summary, Richard. Um, there's a lot of places to go here. But one of the things that I, I was just thinking about this, and there was another piece that came out today that was also quite poignant from um, Dr. Abdelaziz Al-Shawag. Actually, you yeah. sent this to me, Richard. And it it's basically talking about how uh, the, uh, the 30 Democratic members of the U.S. Congress, which sent a letter... Um, on to the president, I believe on, yeah, to the Biden administration on Yemen, right. um, was just sort of completely missed the point. And it sort of seemed, you know, anachronistic, um, as the, as the author writes, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, so the timing of the congressman's letter was out of touch with the global scene as the U S is soliciting the support of all countries, including Americans sworn adversaries to help address the Ukraine crisis. It is counterproductive to publicly undermine U S relations with Saudi Arabia, one of the oldest and most reliable partners in this region in terms of public diplomacy and real action at times of crisis, there is a need to shore up support from allies and partners. Differences of opinion and more serious disagreements are normal in a decades old relationship, such as a, such as the Saudi American partnership. These things need to be handled. He writes, you know, country to country, not through the media. So just going back to the Prince Turkey piece, 
it really is amazing how thin-skinned the U.S. media is about something like this, while it's just very common. And in fact, the reason why there are so many misperceptions about Saudi Arabia, I believe, in the United States is because the American media is just behind the times. And we'll talk a little bit about that when it comes to terrorist financing. But let me kick it back back over to you on that. Just I, I think this is just a really great piece. And I love how you said, you know, just get do yourself a favor and just read it and and t- think about it. You know, you don't have to agree with it, but it's a it's a great great piece and prince turkey is an excellent writer and always has been he is uh, very articulate very well spoken and i think that's an excellent point lucian and that's a, i think it's a good linkage with that article um you know behind the times it keeps coming back doesn't it we talk mm-hmm. about this it's yeah uh you know i use the term outdated um and, and just to foreshadow a little bit one of our yellows today will be about the uh Report that uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia are are going to re- renew their their dialogue. They're going to meet again, uh, possibly later this month. And uh, some of that in the, in the reporting on that, some of that is all right. So there's some good news coming out of Yemen. There's a two month truce. So there's been a leadership change, really initiated and structured by Saudi Arabia after an extensive conference with 1,000 representatives from from Yemen. Obviously, not the Houthis didn't come. They didn't want to do it in Riyadh, understood. And nonetheless, there's a new leadership uh, council in Yemen. Uh, Iran's rhetoric is changing a little bit. But again, and this is our problem we've pointed out again, so much of our foreign policy, our national interests are, are, are um, informed and directed by domestic policy. And uh, these 30 Democratic senators, I understand their point. I understand... Uh, you know, that they want to put uh, certain issues to the fore in, in a relationship, but uh, I think it's atrophied. I think it's not fully formed. I think it's outdated and reactive. And there's more and better things to be engaging with Saudi Arabia on now. And if you do that, you can also engage on these issues too. So anyway, I think your your connection with the, of the two pieces was, was insightful. Thank you. It happens very rarely. But <laughs> and by the way, you know, and, and, and sort of putting together my thoughts on Prince Turkey's speech, which is, is, is very good. I, I had to stop because there's so many things I wanted to go into. You know, I started, you know, going on about, you know, thinking about, you know, uh, you know, Saudi frustration with U.S. hypocrisy and double standards. And, and you know, and, and, and yes, they, they 100 uh, percent do not support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But, you know, nor did they support the U.S. invasion of Iraq. They 100 uh, percent regret and, and lament the, the uh, human, uh, the, you know, the cruelty being suffered by Ukrainians, just as they do the Palestinians, uh, you know, and they've seen the U.S. support Israel and all of his actions in, in occupied territories for decades. So for them, it's just, it's just, uh, there's, it's a fuller picture. It's, it, there's more involved than just being uh, our ally. And I do believe they're our ally and I do believe we'll get through this. But, uh, you know, for this is this is what I mean. These 30 Democratic senators only see one thing or Democrats. They only see one thing. They only see it from one perspective. This is sort of what Prince Turkey is talking about. Just become a little more self-aware, please. And how inappropriate is it for the United States and Americans and the U.S. media to lecture Saudi Arabia on press freedoms and, you know, the the lack of ability for Saudis to really say what they think. And then at the same time, out of the other side of their mouth, say, we don't like you making fun of us. 
I mean, it, it's just like, I mean, I, I, I understand it and it, I could see how it might seem a little insulting, but what the real insult actually is, is that our perception of Saudi Arabia is not even just as a little brother, but as a, uh, you know, a fifth or sixth little brother way down the line. And it's like, well, how do you think that feels for Saudis to hear? I mean, well, I mean, so I just, it is, it, it's hard to really wrap your head around and, and we could, we could honestly go on this for another another hour because there's other things that this kind of ties into just oh, by the by the way and in, in, in uh prince turkey mentions that in his um in the article in that that you know the carrot a stick approach he specifically says look you know in a carrot a stick approach and this is I'll, I'll quote him uh American politicians of all political persuasions shoot arrows at the kingdom to criticize and demean, even to the extent of calling for a carrot and stick approach to dealing with Saudi Arabia. I tell them that we are not school children who accept such chastisement and reward. Our friendship with the U.S. stems from our shared interest in finding peace in the Middle East, combating terrorism, and challenging Iran's aggressions and its declared animosity to both of us. There it is. In a nutshell, let's update the relationship. Let's update how we engage. Could not, go. could not, could not, no, I just, I, I'm I, just, this piece is so good. And, and Prince Turkey has done this, um, you know, uh, I'm really since he retired, he's just yeah. so poignant and he's so, um, he, he just really is, uh, anyway, we're, we're going to put this in the, in the comments. We'll have a link to this article. Just, just check it out. And, um, you know, it's just a, it's just a really interesting piece and a really, really well-written, uh, item. Um, Fascinating. We hope to get Prince Turkey on the program at some point soon. Um, but, we do. Uh, oh, and, we're, and my colleague here is working on that at, at, as we speak. So we would be, be honored. Good. We would be, it would just be, it would be, we'd be honored. But anyway, yes, we're hopeful he'll join us. And uh, that would be a coup and a, and a red letter day for the 966. Indeed. Um, my one big thing, and again, Richard, uh, two weeks in a row, we're kind of uh, matching our one big things. And this is not, this is accidental. <laughs> this is not on purpose. Um, new rules from the Saudi government have been put in place to make it harder for charities in Saudi Arabia to become donators to extremist causes, both inside and outside of the kingdom. The Saudi public prosecution has banned the establishment of private websites to collect donations for charitable work outside the kingdom in an effort to stop funds being sent to terror groups. This is according to a report in the Saudi Okaz newspaper uh, relayed, which is in Arabic, relayed by the Middle East Monitor. A statement issued by the government body explained that the punishment for anyone who has proven to be proven to have committed a cyber crime by creating websites for terrorist organizations will be 10 years in jail and a fine of $1.3 million. The Saudi public prosecution affirmed that donations can only be made through quote, official authorities concerned with receiving charitable relief and international humanitarian donations. Richard, I made this my one big thing this week because I feel like I still get a fair amount of questions and comments on Saudi Arabia and terrorist financing. And it's not just sort of hoi polloi haranguing, it's general, like genu genuine interest. How is Saudi doing on curbing terrorist financing? Is it curbing terrorist financing after 9-11, of course? Um, that was the big story was not only that 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi, but that there was sort of an unregulated, um, you know, Islamic finance, not Islamic financing, but um, using of Islamic charities to then wire money into nefarious hands. And this is just like we discussed. It's one of those things where perceptions now lag a little bit behind the reality today. It's one of the areas in which the U.S. and Saudi Arabia work most closely together. 
The State Department releases an annual report on terrorist financing every year, and the latest available shows really just all plaudits for Saudi Arabia. Um, the U.S. Uh, and Saudi Arabia set up a terrorist financing target targeting center. Um, Saudi Arabia is a member of FAF, FATF and MENA FATF. Um, it really, Saudi Arabia has all but defeated, and we talked with uh, Colonel Brad Gandhi about this, has all but defeated terrorism and extremism within its own borders, at least you know from ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And now it's really working on making sure funds don't go abroad. Uh, Richard, you saw last year that um, Saudi Arabia announced that um, the kingdom will stop funding mosques in foreign countries. All of this stuff is just sort of like, you don't, it's not really widely known, but in fact, Saudi Arabia is now one of the toughest countries on terrorist financing out there. So I thought this new uh, story, which came out this week, that they're taking the next step to prevent digital charities, online websites and the such from from raising money from charitable Saudis during Ramadan and, and really as with Zakat as one of the five pillars of Islam, um, just fascinating and shows real actual change happening in Saudi Arabia right now on an, on an important front. I don't think I can add anything. I mean, that's really well done. And by the way, that's in uh, Lucian does the um, the featured P1 in our what we call it P1 featured in our daily newsletter, uh, Sustig Review, which please uh, do subscribe. It's free. Uh, and he did that today. And it, it captures a lot of that even more so. And this uh, I, I think you're right. There is uh, Saudi U.S. State Department does a country report on terrorism every year. Saudi Arabia for a long time has come up uh, as a cooperative, supportive, deeply involved member of the global community, as a member, as you say, Financial Asset Action Task Force, as a member of the MENA Financial Asset Action Task Force, one of the founders of the Terrorist Financing Targeting Center. They're the ones who actually suggested it. It's based in Riyadh. It's It it's cl works closely with, with, this was founded in 2017, works closely with the U.S., um, and this is not, as you, and you all, you reference uh, zakat, you reference Ramadan. So the act of giving is a fundamentally important part, charity, a fundamentally important part of being a Muslim. And for so many years, these were given, you know, to, to uh, organizations all over, you know, any organization to come to Saudi Arabia or make an appeal. And, 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 and the problem was you really didn't know where that money went after you gave it. A lot of times you didn't know where the money went. And in many cases, the money was used nefariously. On top of that, there were also some Saudi donors who were actively involved in trying to support these 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 uh, terrorist groups over time. And, and Saudi Arabia has just really aggressively and comprehensively uh, addressed this issue. And I think it's interesting. Sort of during the during Ramadan, there was a um, there's a, a, a an organized public official campaign, the Saudi Arabia's national campaign for charitable work, Hassan. And during Ramadan, it does a campaign to raise charity funds. Again, it's shutting down illegal, unauthorized uh, avenues in terms of giving. And at the same time, it's creating uh, easily accessible, public endorsed, easily monitored, monitored vehicles for charitable giving. So Hassan they raised $500 million in donations, you know, in, in the first nine days of Ramadan. Mm. And this will go, you know, from 24 million transactions and it'll, it, it, it will benefit, according to the, the report, uh, over four hundred four and a half million people. Uh, 
so it's, it's, it's shutting down the, the avenues on one side has been and is in very good you know, position with regard to the U.S. counterterrorism reports and also giving charitable Saudis uh, useful and easily accessed vehicles to, to you know, perform a charitable act, which, which, which Muslims really feel very good and compelled to do. We, we talk a lot about, you know, mutually aligned interests. This is not the United States telling Saudi Arabia, you have to do this. This is Saudi Arabia doing it because uh, it benefits Saudi Arabia. Another reason why America should continue to support and invest in Vision 2030, it's the best tool Saudi has at countering extremism. Bored mm -hmm. Saudis are not joining extremist groups as they did before <laughs> economic and social reforms. There's stuff to do at home. Uh, there's a chance for them to fit into society, build a life and family. But Saudi Arabia is really doing this, I think, and this is just my opinion, but they're doing it because these charities that, um, you know, are un were unregulated and sent money abroad eventually finance Saudi Arabia's enemies. I mean, they're doing it out of their own interests, not because we're telling them to do it. And this is just one of those areas where, you know, there's a lot of media coverage over the Biden snub and the you know, and oil and stuff. But like, no matter what, this is not changing. This is just getting stronger. Um, this sort of U.S.-Saudi partnership to, to fight terrorism financing. And this is why we can't just throw the relationship away because of, you know, personal differences between, you know, U.S. leaders in Saudi Arabia. But I just thought this was interesting. It was, it's sort of like, you know, for so long, and we talk about this all the time, Richard, there's a Khashoggi and a Yemen paragraph in almost every news report on Saudi Arabia. They're the top concerns or criticisms of Saudi Arabia in a news report. You sort of have to put them in. It used to be, um, you know, school books and education and terrorism financing. And these are things that Saudi Arabia resolved or is working hard to resolve. So they're no longer at the top of their list of criticisms of Saudi Arabia. So um, but there's no mission accomplished banner that we throw up for them. It's just they're doing it to make sure that there isn't homegrown terrorism financing in Saudi Arabia so that they can have a vibrant society. Well put. I like that. I'm not going to I'm not going to, you know, tarnish that close. That was really nice. <laughs> oh, thank you. All right. So um, we don't have a special guest this week, and that is because we have several weeks coming up where we have multiple special guests and at some point, our brains might just short out from all this work. I, so, I can't prepare for any more. <laughs> um, but we do have a, a couple of weeks coming up where we have some very, very exciting uh, guests. So this week, we're just going to jump right into the Yella section. Yella. And uh, we'll get Saudi you up to date on Saudi in a minute. We'll get you up to date on Saudi Arabia this week, headed into the weekend. And as always, my colleague here will kick us off. By the way, uh, the rare exception is when we don't have a guest nowadays, and I, but it's kind of fun when it's just us. It is. It, it's it's happened what twice or three times yeah. so and far I'm in thirty six episodes. So I'm looking at the schedule, and it's not coming again for <laughs> anytime soon. So uh, let's enjoy it. Number one, Yella Saudi in a minute. Saudi film industry, according to a report this week in Arab News, Saudi Arabia's Film Commission has licensed fifty six theaters in twenty cities so far since its launch in April, 2018. In those theaters, 1,144 films were shown, including 22 Saudi films. The number of ticket sales amounted to 30,860,956 for films in 22 languages from 38 countries. Wow, uh, 4,500 young Saudi men and women are employed now in this industry, which is just red hot and booming. Um, mm -hmm. I believe that one of the largest film 
companies in Saudi Arabia is about to IPO. I don't have that information in front of me, but yes, movie. It's um, homegrown, M-U-V-I, homegrown, M-U-V-I. Saudi cinema, cinema thing. It's homegrown, 20 friggin' 18. This is what we're talking about. Update your understanding of the country. Yes. And I mean, we, we this is obviously well known, but to start a new a cinema sector from nothing and to be here now is quite something with a global pandemic right in the middle of it. So Saudis love going to movies. And we've talked about this, Richard, uh, when... We would host some here. One of the things they'd love going to do is going to see big blockbuster movies. Um, that's no longer happening anymore because they have them at home. But just really cool to see this. And um, yeah, more and more cinemas popping up all over the kingdom. Very exciting stuff. And speaking of big blockbusters, some of these are coming down the pike that are produced and, and shot in Saudi Arabia. Kandahar, uh, Desert Warrior, a couple of others that... We'll be hitting the big screen and we're talking big screens globally, which will be, you know, they have uh, significant Saudi involvement, investment. And also, as I said, we're produced and, and, and shot in Saudi Arabia. Gerard Butler and Kandahar, uh, Sir Ben Kingsley mm-hmm. in Desert Warrior, as well as some others. But um, and also the guy who uh, in Avengers, he's also in is that Desert Warrior. I think it is. Um Anyway, we'll get to that. But yes, so everything's changing. Take a look. Pay attention. Catch up. <laughs> and in, and that's why we're doing Yella, to get you caught exactly. up before the weekend. In the Venn diagram, the Vision 2030 Venn diagram of economy and society, this is right in the middle. This is a new industry. There are a lot of opportunities for investors and for jobs, but it's also a quality of life thing. Um, Vision 2030 is all about creating a better quality of life for Saudis and being able to go to the movie theaters on Friday nights, young Saudis being able to go on dates, stuff like that is is now happening in Saudi Arabia. Update your uh, perceptions, like you just said. Yeah. Um, Yella number two, Saudi Arabia's stock market is the sixth hottest globally in 2022, according to Bloomberg data. As of this week in April, the TASI is up, the Tadawul All Share Index is up 22% this year in dollar terms, 22%. Optimism for the Saudi economy in 2022 continues to grow on the back of higher oil prices and a kingdom well positioned to grow in the post pandemic year. Hmm. You know, just keeps uh, piling success on success. It's a nice run they're having, and especially with the revised uh, economic uh, forecast for 2022, upwards to over 7% um, by the World Bank. Uh, it, you know, every, everything's coming up roses. In today's uh, Sustig review, I, I mentioned it again, an interesting video with, um, with uh, Tarek Fadullah, who is the Middle East CEO at Nomura Asset Management, talking about the Saudi Arabia as a stand-down economy and, and, and the reasons why. Um, and also, the thing about the stock exchange moving along like this and, and everybody fired up is they're, they're, we've seen 16 listings in 2022, and there's over 70 applications pending. Just terrific way to make a capital, uh, you know, the the Tadawul is, you know, now a source of capital for private sector companies, uh, either wanting to go wholly public or, or partially public. Um, and on the other side, it allows uh, Saudi and, and international investors to get a piece of the economy. It's just just all good. It's all good. That, that report you referenced, Richard, which talked about the GDP growth, what was interesting about that is they said it's not just the oil economy, which obviously is on fire right now, uh, but it is the non-oil economy that is starting to really see some traction. And that's yeah. really what Saudi Arabia wants to see. 
<laughs> the oil economy driving everything is good for now, but not good for the long term. And they realize that that's part of what Vision 2030 is all about. So right. um, uh, really cool. Um, wish we had invested oh, at some point. <laughs> <Dang> um, <it. laughs> three. Uh, after a seven month, seven month hiatus, senior Iranian and Saudi security officials are expected to resume their dialogue in Iraq later this week. Umwaj Media, which, by the way, is, is, does some good reporting, has learned this and, and reported on it. It's still speculative, but there, there seems to be good sources behind it. Speaking on conditions of anonymity, an informed Arab source has suggested that a fifth round of talks will be held on April 21st, um, tomorrow. Uh, the upcoming tr- April, 21st, uh, April 21st attended, quote, attended by representatives appointed by the high, highest leadership of the two countries, unquote. The upcoming meeting will be a, quote, three or four hour session, unquote, held at the same menu as previous rounds of talks. You talk about the El Dorado or crown jewel or most highly sought after foreign policy detente that can happen in Saudi Arabia right now. It's with Iran. I don't know a lot about this, but this seems definitely like progress in the right direction. A hundred percent. And it's better they're talking than not. It's better they're talking civilly than not. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some movement uh, on on Yemen, which we mentioned. You know, there's a, the, the two-month truce, which was a surprise and well handled by the U.N. special envoy. Leadership change, again, engineered by the Saudis uh, that brought together, you know, moved out Hadi and brought together a, a bunch of, I think, six or seven different uh, anti-Houthi factions and with the mandate to try and find a political solution. Um, I also add there was, again, in today's uh, Sustic Review, this is third time, and it's because it's, it's a freaking, it's amazingly good curated source. I mean, it's read by, you know, it's got, we've got, got 20,000 subscribers. It, it reaches 250,000 viewers, uh, uh, you, you know, it's 250,000 views a month. People like it, people value it. One of the interesting articles today was, um, in, by Ishtiak Ahmed, in his opinion. It's basically finally a glimmer of hope in the Middle East and uh, in Arab news. And he's talking about the diplomatic movements that are going on in the region. It's particularly, he was focusing on Turkey and how they're, they're, they're uh, sort of reconciling with Qatar and UAE. And, I mean, not, not Qatar, but UAE, Saudi, and by extension, Egypt, and how important this is to the region to deconflict so many of these, these ongoing antagonisms. Uh, obviously, the, the 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 rift between Iran and Saudi Arabia runs deep, and it will probably never be fully bridged. But it's good that they're talking. And we talked about this in our episode last week as one of the positive things, you know, uh, it, coming along in the region. So good. I'm glad they're talking. They may have some good things to talk about on Yemen, uh, and maybe there'll be a breakthrough there. Nobody gets their hopes up or gets, uh, gets out ahead of their, over their skis, as they say. But it's good that they're talking and have renewed discussions. Looming over all of this, of course, is the Iran deal and the Biden administration trying to get that jump started again. Another topic that I haven't followed too closely, but that's sort of the big <laughs> elephant in the room. Um, but yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Yella number four, cementing Saudi Arabia's status as a serious art powerhouse on the world stage. The Duria Biennale Foundation has announced its inaugural Islamic Arts Biennale, according to a report in Vogue Middle East, quote, honoring the richness of the kingdom's creative heritage while championing, championing 
innovation, and fresh ideas. The Biennale will explore spirituality in the aesthetic realm and a diversity of artistic expressions. It will also provide new dialogues and insights by inviting international artists from around the world. I'm, actually, you showed admirable restraint. There are only four Biennales in there. And I, I said, <laughs> apart from its news value, I figured the opportunity to, to show off our mastery of Biennale I kind of was the reason the for this yellow. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, should I keep reading this? I met, messed up the first one. <laughs> no, no, that was nice. Um, uh, extremely, you know, because as you mentioned, it's following on the Daria, the extremely successful and well-attended Daria Biennale uh, last in 2021. Uh, and, uh, you know, keep it coming. You know, it's the first, as you said, this first contemporary art Biennale it was done in, in, in Riyadh, the Jack's district. This is going to be done in Jeddah, which is great. Spread it around. Uh, one of the things they do well, and one of the things they did with the Daria of art, uh, uh, contemporary art Biennale um, was bring in experts from all over the world. They have leading experts from, from London, from uh, the U.S. Smithsonian Institution, from uh, South Africa. Uh, it, this is really a tremendous way not only to bring art to the people, to celebrate art, to promote art, uh, but also to get international involvement in the transformation of what's going on in Saudi Arabia. You know, the art scene as well as any number of others, but in this, in this instance, the art scene. Uh, I love that, uh, like so much of what they're doing, they're, they're not only, you know, there's last year was the contemporary art. This one is Islamic art. So they're, they're celebrating art in its entirety, and they're especially paying attention to cultural things that are important to them, like Islamic art. This is just great. And it's an opportunity to say Biennale again. Biennale. They announced uh, co-curators for the Biennale, uh, which will include Sumaya Valley, who is co-founder and principal of Counterspace, um, a collaborative architecture studio in South Africa. Um, they are also participating in the Venice Biennale, which is coming up this summer, I believe. Um, but uh, just cool. I mean, just really cool stuff I'd love to see in person, but... I mean, also stuff you can't imagine happening five years ago there. So it's yeah, just really nice, really nice story here. Um, five, number five, Yella, number five. Yahoo reports that Saudi Arabia is hosting an international competition, which is broadcast on official state TV during Ramadan that features competitors using their voice alone, reciting the Holy Quran or delivering the Islamic call to prayer. More than 40,000 contestants from 80 countries have participated in, after several stages, 36 candidates from Britain, Canada, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Egypt, Algeria, Iran, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Turkey have reached the finals. The total prize is $3.2 million. The first place winner in the category of reciting the Holy Quran receives $1.3 million, while the first place winner in the category of delivering the call to prayer receives $533,000. The remaining prize money is divided among six other contestants. Wow. 40,000 contestants, 80 countries. Um, that's amazing. The competition combines good performance and the laws of melody, targeting the beauty of voice with, without the accompaniment of musical instruments. This is this, cool, man. <laughs> this, so, this so speaks to me. By the way, as an update, they, they have winners. Moroccan Eunice Mustafa Harbi uh, uh, recited his way to first place and bagged the 1.3 million, 1.33 million prize in uh, reciting the Quran. 
Britain's Muhammad Ayub Asif came second. Bahrain's Muhammad Mujahid came third. And Iran's Sayyid Jassim Musavi was fourth. Hmm. Uh, in terms of the call to prayer, Turkey's Muhsin Kara and Abidjan Celik secured first and second places, winning 530K and 267K, respectively. The Saudi pair, so this is interesting. There were all these very lucrative prizes. Only two went to Saudis. Saudi pair of Abdul Rahman bin Adil and Anas al Rahili came third and fourth, bagging 133K and 66,666,000, respectively. The prestigious competition is notable for precise judging criteria with a set of distinguished jurors, 13 member judging panel, including Muezzins from the two holy mosques, key Quran reciters from around the globe, and famous international competition assessors. Lucian, I have to say this kind of speaks to me. I, I don't know why. It really, I, I just love this. And, 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 you know, actually, it's quite beautiful. But because, so I grew up, you know, in a Baptist church here. And there's all sorts of community things that you remember. I, you know, for me, I remember obviously going to Sunday school and Sunday church. But what I really loved was in the Baptist church, you'd have Wednesday dinners. So it'd be the community coming together for Wednesday dinners. As a kid, this was just, you know, you could come eat a lot and play with your friends and be in the community. I mean, these are things you remember. I mean, this, this, this Easter Sunday, uh, you know, we went to church and I was just, the pastor gave a really good sermon and I was just fired up. This is great. I love this. But when you, when you, when you grow up in a predominantly Muslim country like Saudi Arabia, uh, recitation of the Quran, the call of the Muslim. I mean, this is this is in your DNA. This is you know, your cultural DNA, and 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 I think for any Muslim who hears the call or 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 or, or uh, listens to a really finely uh, recited passage of the Quran, you know, they're they're not only connected to the words, but they're connected to their community, which is what I sort of what I'm saying. You know, when I went to Wednesday meals, you know, in my Baptist church. Um. And so to celebrate this, I, I don't know. I just I just think this is extraordinary. We did a we had an interesting uh, article earlier um, in the news review about traditions during Ramadan, and uh, one of them it talked about the Musaharati, which is a person who walks and beats a drum in residential areas to wake up worshippers before the Sahur meal, which is the first meal before daybreak, you know, in the morning. So it's always early in the morning. I mean, if you're a kid, how exciting would that be? Mm -hmm. You know, everyone's out in the street all night for one thing. And then you, then, you know, it's the, the call to the, to, to the meal, same thing. One of the things that they talked about was uh, the fanus, the, the kaleidoscopic sort of colored lanterns in, in Cairo and Egypt. And all I'm saying is, is I love this competition. Because I think it touches Muslims. All I'm not a Muslim, obviously, but I can only imagine. But I mean, if you're a Muslim, it just speaks to you because this is beautiful in their minds. This is evocative in their world. It 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 builds a sense of community. I just think it's an awesome contest. Obviously, this this got to me because I just rambled on for a bit. Well said. No, that was fascinating. Um, really, really cool. Is this an annual thing that they'll be doing? It is nice. Cool. As I understand it. Yeah. Um, that is fascinating. That was, that was really good. Um, added value to that, Richard. That was, that was nice. Um, the call to prayer is five times a day, right? Yes. Yeah. And it, it begins with Salat al-Fijr, which is at the first of the day at like 4.50 in the morning or something, right? When the sun comes <laughs> yes. up. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
as a Muslim, I suppose it's both it's both engaging and makes you feel a community. And I'm sure many times of the day it's kind of irritating because I'm trying, you know, so it's you know, this is this is religion writ large mm-hmm. <laughs> or writ small. <laughs> Yellow number six. That was great, Richard. Yellow number six. Saudi Arabia uh, completes an eight day beach soccer training camp. Beachsoccer.com another niche website we like to reference um, <laughs> reports that Saudi Arabia national beach, Saudi Arabia's national beach soccer team under the supervision of their head coach, head coach, Brazilian yoga. Zlokovic. man. Yes. Yes. Yoga Zlokovic underwent an intensive eight day training camp at the King Faisal sports city in Jazan. A total of 15 players took part in the training, and as the camp took place during Ramadan, the team sessions were held in the middle of the night from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. The first edition of the Neom Beach Soccer Cup, which took place in Saudi Arabia back in 2019, was the first official competition of the Saudi national team, and they beat China and the UAE to finish third. Beach soccer seems like a really good workout because <laughs> it's oh really hard to run on the beach. Oh, my. Um but this is cool that this is happening in Saudi Arabia. I didn't even know it existed. And and also I didn't did you know that FIFA is a governing body for beach soccer? I've never heard of it. No, I have I heard no of FIFA, idea. obviously, but not of beach soccer. But that's and crazy. The, and the Beach Soccer World Cup is held every year, every two years. The next one's in 2023. So so I guess in the running, Bahrain, the UAE, and the Seychelles have been announced by FIFA as the three countries bidding to host the 2023 Beach Soccer World Cup. So I guess it does, you know, if you're talking about beach soccer, you know, it it limits the number of countries that you can, that can, you know, host it. But uh, I had no idea. And I think it's pretty cool. They're practicing at 1 a.m. in the morning. That's awesome. On the beach. On the Um, beach. Yes. My, my, I guess my first question I would have, and I know that you probably don't know the answer, but are they, (laughs) are they like smoothing out the beach and they're starting the match and it's nice and smooth, but over the match, there's a you know the beach gets chopped up and that adds to the intrigue of it or like what's the it's a great question because every beach has a natural slope too yeah and this by the way uh what was the name of the watch company richard oh um richard miller or yeah uh, but but anyway their polo their polo (laughs) event in alula on sand Mm -hmm. you know that again another sort of reapplication of a sport on sand. Uh, I don't know. I, I, but again, I assume it's groomed to begin with, but I guess you probably couldn't do it during the game. But, uh, and then again, that natural slope is interesting. Yeah. We'll have to, this is another sport. I'm going to have this, to figure yeah. out and watch. <laughs> it just seems really, really tiring. I mean, walking on the beach is tiring. So, um, well, you know, in the interest, especially if Seychelles wins the host, it becomes the host in the interest of research, we probably should go visit the Seychelles to observe this 2023 beach soccer world cup. We should. Um, we should be ambassadors. Um, yeah, so maybe the... pick, up, pick up our lucid airs on the way. <laughs> you could also <laughs> deliver them while we're gone. That's totally that'd be, cool. I'd be, I'd be perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, that puts a bow on it. Richard, this was good. Um, always interesting. Um, great to finish with beach soccer, um, starting with U.S.-Saudi relations and getting right into beach soccer. Love it. Um, shorter episode this week. We will have a slew of awesome guests coming up next week. Uh, and in the coming weeks. So shorter episode today, but uh, still good. Richard, thank you very much. Always brilliant, Lucian. Thanks. So much fun. Thank you. Back to work now. (laughs) Back to work.